name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let's stand and lift up the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on. Everybody, let's lift up the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, I lift you up, God. I magnify your holy name, Jesus. Lord, I know that I'm not worthy, God. That's already been settled, but Jesus, I don't care. I want to exalt you. I want to love you. I want you to know from the depths of my heart, God, that you are my everything. Lord, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Many times I think about what it must have been like for Peter. What it must have been like to hear for the rest of his life to hear a rooster crow. I just wonder, what did he think of every time he heard that rooster crow? Even, even deep into his ministry, what did he think of? I can tell you what he thought of because he was flesh. He thought of the time that Jesus said before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And even though he was still working and moving and winning people, one of the greatest soul winners ever, ever to walk the face of this earth, every time he heard a rooster crow, I can guarantee you his thoughts went back to the time that he denied Jesus. And I'm here to tell you tonight, today, that there's somebody here that's struggling to get over their past, that's struggling to say, you know what, I'm just not worthy. I just can't move on. But you know what? You have to. You have to just keep moving. You're going to hear the rooster crow. What it must have been like to be Paul, a persecutor of the Christian, a persecutor of the faith, to move into what he did for Jesus, what it must have been like. That's bonus. That's not even in my notes. I just felt to say it. Get over your past. It's going to be there. Let me tell you, there's no secret remedy that's going to make it go away. You got to learn to toughen up and get through it. Toughen up. Say, you know what? I can do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Amen. Forgive me. I don't want to ramble. If you would open the word, your word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to talk to you this morning from a, 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 a topic that is a part of who I am. Um, I was raised under Papa K and now been under Pastor Hughes for four years plus, and this is just who I am. And, you know, if, if, if you've heard this before and you know this by heart and you tune me out, you're probably the one that really needs to hear it again and really needs to get in depth and understand what's being said. I'm going to talk to you today about a very, very, very familiar topic. It's the reason why we're all here. It's the reason why we exist as a church, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. 
Everybody say, God, help me not to believe in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, which is Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. So everybody say, God help me not to fall asleep. It's amazing that he's talking to many of us in this scripture. You know, the one thing I've learned the more I get into the ministry is that pretty much everybody I come into counter with, what you see is not what you get. And that's been an eye-opener for me. So today, I want you to just give me a few minutes of your time. I promise I will be, I will be uh, respectful of your time if you'll just pay attention and let's go into the word of the Lord together. God, I pray right now that you're, you would anoint these lips of clay. Lord, that you would anoint the ears to hear this word that you've given. God, I pray that, that your presence would be allowed to move throughout this sanctuary, Lord, And that we would receive your word with an open heart, with an open spirit, and an open mind. And everybody said, in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. The gospel I have vowed between me and the Lord that I will always preach the gospel. I am not so interested in coming up here and tickling your ears and using things that are so far above my head. I've tried. I end up digging a deep hole for myself that I have to climb out of using Greek and and terms and stuff that I don't even understand. And uh, so I've declared with God, I said, God, if, if you've really called me to the ministry and you've really put this in my heart, what I want to do is make sure that I always preach the gospel. So I try to preach the gospel, uh, the, the, the gospel by the standards of the biblical term, the gospel, um, every chance I get. I don't care if it's a seasoned congregation. I don't care if it's a new congregation. So you might be able to sit there and say, you know, I'm going to tune this out because this is really for new converts. This is really for people trying to get the Holy Ghost. No, you know what? I have found in my life that the gospel is true every day. And the gospel needs to be applied to your life every day because if not, trust me, trust me when I say you can't cast out flesh. You live in the flesh and you're going to battle things. And if you don't, if you don't keep this in the forefront of your memory, you're going to continue to struggle with things. So I, I say today, please be patient with me as I try to bring you the word of the Lord as he has put it in my heart. What is the gospel the English word gospel means simply good news or good message. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 4 gives us the basic biblical definition of the gospel, which is the, be- the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, for these historical facts to have any kind of meaning today, we need to understand their doctrinal significance. Simply telling someone... Or simply hearing that God died and was buried and rose from the dead doesn't mean anything without explaining 
how that death, burial, and resurrection is applied to them and to their life. Therefore, explaining what is good about the good news. What is so good about the good news? What is so good about the good message? The significance is that by these acts, Christ purchased salvation and he made it available to everyone who would believe on him. He died for our sins, was buried and rose again, thereby winning victory over sin and death and enabling us to have what is called eternal life. How do we apply the gospel to our lives? How do we really apply the gospel to our lives? How do we respond or how do we really obey the gospel? How do we identify personally with the gospel? Anybody knows the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. You're saved. No. No. How do we apply this gospel to our life? How do we respond and obey the gospel? Paul gave the answer to these questions in Romans 6, 3 3 through 5, in which he explained how a person actually identifies with Christ's death, with Christ's burial, and his resurrection. First of all, we must identify with the death of Jesus Christ, who was crucified upon the cross. We must crucify our old man and put it to death. This doesn't mean we won't continue to battle with our old man because we live in flesh. And just like I said, you can't, you can cast out a spirit, but you can't cast out your flesh. Because in Galatians 5, it talks, it states that the Christian will continue to war against his carnal nature. What is put to death? Well, what's put to death is the dominion of sin and the dominion and control of sinful nature. That has over the unsaved, Romans 6, 12, and 14. I'm throwing these scriptures out because if we go back, I want, you, I want you to listen to the message when you go back and dig up these scriptures. I want you to be able to see it for yourself. When we are saved, sin and Satan's control over us is completely destroyed. Since the dominion of sin over us is lost, our death with Christ, in our death with Christ, we should treat it itself as death. We should treat sin as death. Sin can no longer dictate to us the control or it can no longer control us. We can overcome temptations and ignore uh, sin's power. Although we can sin if we desire, we should not submit ourselves to sin, but we should treat it as it no longer exists. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, is a message within itself. You can't continue to play with sin. You can't continue to play with the things that you've tried to put to death. You know, some of us are sitting here this morning and we say, you know, death, uh, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I've done all that. But you know what? We're still going back and flirting with sin. We're still going back and flirting with the things. Oh, you know what? I've got control. I've beat it before. You know, it really isn't going to mess with me that much this time. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a gutter looking up and calling a preacher and saying, help me, preacher, help me, because you can't handle the sinful nature without the help of the Lord. And when you put it to death, it needs to stay dead. God says, I hate sin. And he commands us to come out of sin. He commands us to leave it alone. Well, well you know, Jay, it's, you know, yeah, you're really reading way too much into this. No. God hates sin. 
That's simple. Put it to death. In Romans 6, Paul explained our freedom from sin's power to the Romans when he reminded them of what actually occurred when they were saved. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in lust thereof. For sin shall not have dominion over you. When does this death happen? When do you kill this old man? When does this really occur? A person's death to sin or his old man or his old nature happens when he or she repents. This is apparent from the very definition of repentance, which is to turn away from or turn away and go in the opposite direction. It's still used in the British military, in the British military as a, as a order and a command. Repent! And when they, the guys are marching and he says repent, they turn and they go back the opposite direction. It's a military command. It means to turn and go back. A 180, not a 360, but a 180. At repentance, a person confesses sin. And that at that moment, they decide to forsake it. That's what he's talking about. Did you believe this in vain? That's what he says in his scripture. Is this something you, just to make you feel better? Is this something just to get you through the rest of the week? Or is this something you're really trying to apply to your life? And to really trying to obey the gospel. A repentance of person confesses their sin. Decides to forsake it. Turns his back on it and refuses to accept its dominion. He dies to the lust and the desires of the old man. And he decides to live for God. Right there, that word decides to live for God. So many of us are looking for this magic spell, this, this magic waving of a wand, this, this Shekinah glory coming down from heaven to help us to move forward. But right here it says, you just got to decide. You got to decide that you want to apply this gospel to your life. At that point, Christ's death on the cross becomes effective in our lives and it enables us to break the bondage of sin. Next is to identify with Christ's burial. Paul states in Romans 6, 3 and 4, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Immersion is the biblical mode, and the name of Jesus is the biblical formula. Since biblical baptism is a total submergence, it truly is a burial. And since baptism is done in the name of Jesus, it truly is an identification with him. When a man receives water baptism, it signifies that he has died to sin and is burying that sin. 
When he emerges from baptism, his old lifestyle and his past sins are forever buried and forgotten. Water baptism then applies Christ's burial to our lives. It's just the gospel. It's just the reason why we exist. It's just the reason why we're here. This this is the core of your foundation as a Christian. If it's not, it should be. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then how do we identify with his resurrection? Paul also explained how we identify with this in in Romans 6, 4, and 5. He says, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That doesn't mean newness of life over there. It means newness of life right here on this terra firma, on this earth. We need to walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul also wrote in Romans 6 and 11, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead, dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ. So when we receive the Holy Ghost, Christ literally comes and lives within us. The Holy Holy Ghost brings into our lives the same power, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. I'm telling you, this earth, this church, this community is going to be shaken when it dawns on somebody what you have living inside of you. The power that you have dwelling inside of you. The power of the Holy Ghost that you've accepted into your life. Those who walk after the Spirit have life in Christ. The newness of life in Romans 6 and 4 is none other than the newness of the Spirit in Romans 7 and 6. The newness of spirit is not just a renewal of the human spirit, but it's the indwelling of God's spirit in you in your life. The spirit brings about a new birth and will give you new life. Thus, the resurrection of Jesus becomes effective to give us new life when we receive the Holy Ghost. I really didn't expect anybody to be shouting, but I did expect a few more amens. I'll just be honest with you. I know I've said this before and I've, I've shocked people and I've turned heads, but we're all going to die someday. <laughs> it's amazing how people live our, their lives. It's as though they're just got forever. It's as though they just, you know, I, I, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's a challenge to save financially. It's a challenge to put up money for your future because especially as a young person, all you can see is right now, right here, right now. You don't see down the road when you're not going to have the ability to be able to work like you used to. And you're not going to, you don't see down the road that you're not going to have the opportunities like you used to. And so you, you, you tend not to invest into your future. This is an investment plan, not just for your future, but for your eternity. We're all going to die. It's inevitable. Sorry. I'm sorry I had to be the one to bust your bubble. We're all going to die someday. 
An old fable is told of a Baghdad merchant who sent his servant to the market to pick up some, some food and some, some items. While the servant was making the purchase in the marketplace, he found himself face to face with death. In great fear, he returned to his master and told him, Master, death, death came and saw me. I saw death in the market. And he, he gave me a menacing look and he, and he gave me this menacing look and it was horrible. I need a horse. I need something to escape. I need to go to Samaria. I need to get away from here. I need to go way away from here. I need to go to Samaria. Let me have a horse, master. And the master said, yes, take a horse. Go quickly. The master was upset, so he went to the market to find death. And he, he found death, and he looked him in the face, and he says, Why did you give my, service a, my, my servant a menacing look? Death replied, I wasn't looking at him menacingly. I was merely surprised to see him here. Because you see, I have an appointment with him in Samaria tonight. Death is going to come. Death is going to happen. It's inevitable. Nobody really likes to go to funerals because you see, funerals remind us that death is very near to all of us. David said long ago, yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a one step between me and death. It is a step that all must take. The Bible teaches that we must be so we must have sober thoughts about life and death. In the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, it says, A good name is better than a fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. That doesn't make sense. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. What? What are they talking about here? Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. I'm really not being encouraged right now. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. Who wrote these scriptures? It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of a, of a fool. That one kind of makes sense. These verses in Ecclesiastes has always seemed to baffle me. Because I just never, it, it never made sense to me why it would be get better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting and a house of laughter. I mean, my goodness, put me in a wedding any day over a funeral. I, I just don't understand that. But in John 5 and 24 is the secret. He states, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's why the Bible says that it would be better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Because it seems to us that a person, when a person's passed away, that he's gone from life to death. But in reality, just as John said in chapter 5, they have gone from death to life. They've moved from this world to what is real reality. Reality is that there is a day coming. There's a day coming that, that you're going to stand before the throne. 
And, and you know what? I don't want to turn this into a doom and gloom message. I don't want to, I don't want you to leave here with fear, but, but if some of you take it that way and, and it helps you, then so be it. I was, I can remember church services. I didn't even want to leave out the door. I was so scared. And people say, oh, you know what? You can't preach like that anymore, Jay. Well, you know what? You can't tell me. I know personally that fear kept me from a lot of things. That fear kept, you know, I, I want to come in here and I want to lift you up and I want to make you happy and I want you high-fiving your neighbor and, and, and bumping knuckles when you leave out the service. But you know what the reality of it is? This is the gospel. This and the, with, combined with X 238 is our ticket into that eternal life. First Corinthians 15 says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. John Milton said, Death is a golden key that opens the palace to eternity. But if you have obeyed the word of God, I've got good news for you. If you have obeyed the word of God and you battle that, like Paul said, you pick up that cross daily. It isn't easy. If you battle that inward man daily and you continue to fight on, there is good news for those that have applied this gospel to your own life. There's good news. Death will one day be destroyed. Revelations 21 and 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. 1 Corinthians 15 and 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Romans 6 and 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. John 5 and 28 says, Do not be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In John 14, 1 and 6, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. Behold, you believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and we cannot, and, and, and we can, we can hear, we can, and how can we know the way. Jesus said, it's easy, Thomas. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. Obey my gospel, Thomas. Obey my gospel, Thomas. Receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, Thomas. This is what my plan is. You want to come, you want to come live in the place that's prepared for you? I really like the statement that Jesus says in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, I go to prepare a place for you. If you have applied the gospel to your life and you obey Acts 2.38, then you are on your way to heaven. And that's a real place according to the statement of Jesus Christ. It's a tangible place. It's a place where you're going to spend eternity. For a lot of people, that's scary. 
I mean, let's be real this morning. That's, that's some scary stuff. What really happens after this? What really happens when we die? OJ, be careful, son. You're, you're walking a fine line. What really happens? You either believe this word or you don't. I'm talking, we, this is something we got to take to heart. We, we, have to, we have to move past all, our, all of our petty troubles and our petty trials. And we have to move into the promises of God. And we have to learn to obey this gospel every day. Every day. And we have to learn that no, not only do we need to obey it every day, but we need, to, we need to speak it into somebody else's life every day. If you are not witnessing to somebody every day, you're not doing good. There's no standard on that. That's just my opinion. So <laughs> if you're not witnessing to God every, to somebody about God every day, if you're not telling somebody that you're praying for him every day, you know what? That very statement right there has opened more doors for me than anything else. I'll be praying for you, Joe. Praying. Are you, you one of the Christian people? Yeah, Joe. I, I, I try to be. Oh, man. So, so... All of a sudden, the questions begin to come. All of a sudden, the questions begin to be asked. You have to prepare yourself. In Revelation 21, chapter beginning with verse 10, the man of God describes heaven. He saw it, and he gives us the dimensions of it, and he describes heaven as a tremendous, tremendous city. He said that it is 12,000 furlings square. It's ten, it takes 10 furlongs to, to make one mile. So in seeing that particular measurement reduced to miles, that would mean that heaven is 1,200 miles cubed in any, in any direction. If you were driving in your automobile down the side of heaven today, it would take you two hard, solid days of driving to drive one, down one side of heaven. If you were to drive your automobile around heaven, it would take you eight Hard days of driving at 70 miles an hour for your automobile to go all the way around the base of heaven. But that's just the beginning because it's cubed. And for 1,200 miles, it soars straight up into the air. At 200 miles, you would break free from the pull of gravity. You're into the atmosphere in the place of the astronauts. But guess what? You still got another 1,000 miles to go. That would give you a lot of miles. They, they say that the total footage, the total square footage of heaven is 8,640 square foot, square miles of heaven. 8,640,000 8, square miles of heaven. Enough total mileage to place about three United States of Americas within it. Heaven's a place, folks. Heaven is a huge place and heaven is a wonderful place. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. We are talking about reality here today. And actually, we're going to experience one of these days. And you know what? For me and my family, I'm headed there. I'm sorry if you're waiting on me to... I just don't care what you say if I take off around this church or if I do my little jig over there or clap my hands. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love you. 
I respect you, but I don't care what you say because I'm going to worship my God. You know why? Because I want to go to heaven. That's what the gospel does for you. It brings a heavenly hope of eternal life. Would you all stand with me?